The scripture today is John 4, 4 to 26. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired, and as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you you now have is not your husband. What you have said, just said, is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and now has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For... They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Um, evangelism is a dirty word in our culture. And never mind all of the associations it has with the word evangelical and all the baggage that carries in our culture of uh, right-wing, homophobic, racist, science-denying, gun-loving bigots. Even apart from all of that, the idea of sharing your faith with others with the goal of converting them is seen as arrogant, ignorant, and intolerant. And even Christians feel the weight of this narrative. For instance, there was a survey a couple of years ago that asked practicing Christians why they don't have spiritual conversations. And here's some of the reasons 
Uh, number one, uh, religious conversations always seem to create arguments. Or, I don't feel like I know enough to talk about religious or spiritual topics. Or, I'm afraid people will see me as a fanatic or an extremist. Now, I don't know about you, but these reasons make sense to me. But even more, they point to a reality. A lot of times, we don't share our faith in public because the reasons against it feel like they outweigh the reasons for it. In other words, we don't have a compelling why to share our faith with other people in public. And without a why, it's pointless to talk about the way. So before we even talk about how we share our faith or why we should share our faith, we need to talk about uh, how or, or the way we share our faith. We should talk about why we should share our faith. Why should we go public with our faith and share the gospel with others? Well, let me invite you to do a little thought experiment. Instead of spiritual conversations, can you imagine people using these reasons to avoid public political conversations? For instance, can you imagine people saying, well, I would never talk about politics in public because political conversations always create arguments. Or because I don't feel like I know enough about politics. Or because I'm afraid people will see me as a fanatic or an extremist. When did any of those reasons ever keep anyone from jumping on Twitter or Facebook and evangelizing others about their polit political convictions? The answer is never. We, we um, have no problem evangelizing other people with our political convictions in public. Why? Because we believe that politics answers the deepest questions of the common good. And therefore, we believe it's crucial for us to have public political conversations because the well-being of the whole world is at stake. Here's the question. What if the gospel, rightly understood, not only has something to say, but more to say to those questions than anything else in the world? We're in the middle of a series um, on what it means to go public with our faith. We've just spent four weeks looking at what it means to go public with our faith in the realm of justice. We're going to spend the next four weeks looking at the realm of evangelism. And we're going to spend this time looking at this story we just read of Jesus and this Samaritan woman at a well. If you want to know why we should go public with our faith and do evangelism, Jesus shows us. And if you're exploring faith, this also shows you um, why you should give Jesus a look if you're exploring faith. So let's look at this passage and, and learn three things that Jesus shows us about the gospel. He's going to show us who is the gospel for, what does the gospel address, and lastly, what does the gospel do? Who is it for, what does it address, and what does the gospel do? Okay, first, who is the gospel for? Uh, we mentioned last week that Jews and Samaritans hated each other. So there were all kinds of uh, social barriers that Jesus would have had to overcome in order to have a conversation with this woman. And we see them right at the beginning. Jesus asks her for a drink, and she says, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. There were all kinds of social barriers here. So first, there was a gender barrier. In a patriarchal society like this, men did not just have random conversations with women that they did not know. 
Secondly, there was a racial barrier. Jews considered Samaritans to be racially impure, or as we would say today, mudbloods. Thirdly, there was a religious uh, barrier. Um, Jews considered Samaritans to be religious heretics. And lastly, there was a political barrier. Jews considered uh, Samaritans to be political traitors. So Jesus blows through every single one of these social barriers in order to have a conversation with this woman. And you can see she's blown away. She says, how is it that you're even talking to me? She can't believe that Jesus has gone through all these social barriers to get into a conversation with her. Friends, here's the point. It's very common, and in fact, because of the history of the world, very understandable that, that we would think of religion as something that divides people. And yet, one of the very first things that Jesus shows us here is that whatever the gospel is about, and we're going to see more about what it's actually about in just a bit, but whatever the gospel is about, at the very least, the gospel brings people together that the world would divide. Or we could say it like this, who is the gospel for? everyone. The, Jesus is showing us that the gospel is for every human being, and especially this woman's story shows us, it's for people the world would say is at the bottom of the social ladder. It's for the poorest. It's for the weakest. It's for the most rejected, the most shoved aside. It's for the, peop, it's for the people that the world would shove aside, the, the, the people that the world doesn't see. So, when we ask the question, why should we go public with our faith and share the gospel? This is reason number one. In our society, we have a moral ideal that says we should always prioritize the weak and the poor and the needy and the oppressed. It's one of the most deeply cherished moral ideals in our society. And you see it both on the right and on the left politically. But here's the question. Where does this moral ideal come from? Many of you know that I'm fascinated by um, how many historians and philosophers are constantly pointing this out. The reason, historically speaking, that, that our society prioritizes caring for the poor and the oppressed is because of the direct impact of Jesus on the moral imagination of the world for the last 2,000 years. Like I said, many of you know I'm fascinated by all the philosophers and historians that are constantly pointing this out because I'm constantly quoting them. So let me quote one for you that I've never quoted before because there's so many to choose from. Jürgen Habermas is one of the most famous philosophers of the last several decades. He's not a Christian, and yet he says this, the ideals, the moral ideals of freedom of conscience, human rights, and democracy are the direct legacy of the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. To this day, there is no alternative to it. Human rights is the moral ideal that says every human being has equal worth and value, and in our society that means especially the poor and the marginalized. Jürgen Habermas is saying that not only does the gospel speak to that moral ideal, it's the source of it. It's the source of that ideal. The gospel says that every human being matters, especially people the world doesn't see, but Jesus sees them. In fact, I don't know if there's anything more painful than being ignored in this world. It's, it's more painful um, and oftentimes even more destructive than physical pain in our lives. For instance, it's pretty well documented that um, the kind of harm and even death that can result when little children or infants are deprived of affection. 
They need to be seen. They need to be touched. We all know something about what that's like. To be afraid that no one will like you or accept you. To be afraid um, of, of a lack of acceptance of others. We know what it's like to feel unloved, unwanted, unseen. Which means that one of the most powerful things, one of the most life-changing things any human being can experience is to be loved and accepted by others. So there was a movie a few years ago called Wonder. It's about a little boy named August Pullman, or Augie for short. Augie's face was disfigured at birth. And so he goes around in public wearing a helmet because the very sight of his face makes people afraid. But then his parents sent him to public school without his helmet. And apart from a couple of kids who are nice to him, nobody will have anything to do with him. They won't look at him. They won't touch him. They say, if you touch Augie, you'll get a plague. Can you imagine what that would be like? Nobody will look at you. Nobody will touch you. But then, towards the end of the movie, some boys that have been bullying him the whole time actually rescue Augie from some other bullies. And it's in that moment of kindness, in that moment of connection, that the main bully throughout the movie actually reaches out and touches Augie's, Augie's hand in a moment of kindness and connection. And at that moment, the sheer experience of being touched, just touched, by somebody who had previously rejected him reduces Augie to tears. Dear ones, when Jesus asks this woman for a drink, he's touching and seeing someone that, that would have expected him to ignore her. He's humanizing someone that everyone else in his tribe would have dehumanized. You know, we're increasingly at a place in our society where we say that there are some people who are so evil, so beyond the pale, so beyond redemption, that it's actually wrong to humanize those people. They only deserve to be rejected, to be canceled. Jesus rejects that narrative, and he humanizes someone that everyone else in his tribe would have dehumanized. And, and here's the really amazing thing about this. Think about all the different ways that Jesus could possibly have begun this encounter. All the ways that he could have begun this conversation. What's the first thing he does? He asks her to help him. Two of the biggest needs in every human being's life are to be known and to be needed. Now we're going to see how Jesus gets to the being known part in just a bit. But where does Jesus start? He starts by affirming that this woman has something of worth and value to offer to the world, to offer to him, that she's needed. Friends, here's the point of our first point. Who's the gospel for? It's for everyone. It's for every human being. The gospel is the very source of our deepest moral ideals that every human being matters, especially those who are most rejected by society. And that leads to our second point. We've just seen who is the gospel for, but secondly, what does the gospel address? When Jesus asks this woman for a drink of water, he isn't just dignifying her, he's actually introducing his main subject. Here in America, in this climate, especially on a rainy day like this, probably very few, if any of us, actually know what it's like to die of thirst. But in a desert climate like this, they knew. Our bodies are at least 50% water. So when we go into extreme dehydration, when our bodies lose water, there's nothing more physically agonizing. I've heard it described like swallowing a furnace. 
It's, it's like you're burning up on the insides, like a fire burning inside of you. People go into delirium, they go crazy, and when they're that thirsty, people will drink almost anything to quench their thirst. People will drink antifreeze. But if you try to quench your thirst with anything but water, it just makes the agony worse. It cranks up the furnace. So water and thirst are a very powerful image of something that's going on in our soul. That's what Jesus is addressing here. Jesus begins with a physical need as a way of addressing a spiritual need. So he says, give me a drink of water. And as we've just seen, this woman's blown away. She says, how can someone like you ask someone like me for a drink? And Jesus says, um, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but the one who drinks the water I give will never thirst. Jesus offers her what he calls living water. Now, what's living water? It's a phrase that Hebrew prophets use in the Old Testament. It's a, an image of the life-giving, life-renewing, life-restoring presence of God that, that he gives to us through his Holy Spirit. Living water is the love of God. It's the life of God. It's the presence of God overflowing in our life. That's what Jesus is offering her. And, and we all long for that, whether we realize it or not. In fact, still, I think one of the best um, descriptions of this is from C.S. Lewis, which is why I pull out this quote every couple of years. He says, the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers. Remember what we were just talking about with Augie a few minutes ago? The longing to be acknowledged to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality as part of our inconsolable secret. What a phrase. Do you ever feel like you have an inconsolable secret? He continues by saying, our deepest desire is acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. Don't you ever feel that? We all do. Jesus is saying that the thing you're longing for is living water. It's the life-giving presence of God. That's what he's offering to this woman. And you can see she's intrigued, but she also still doesn't really understand what Jesus is offering her. So she says, um, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. She still thinks that Jesus is talking about physical water. So how does Jesus help her make the connection to what he's really talking about? He says, go call your husband and come back. Dear ones, this is the turning point in the conversation. In fact, this is holy ground. And what Jesus just did is he took off his shoes because he knows that he is stepping onto what is the most sacred, tender, intimate, vulnerable, and painful part of this woman's life. Jesus is so careful here, and we need to be careful too. In fact, even though this morning we're really talking more about the why of sharing our faith and, and not so much the how, I, I do want to point out a couple of things that Jesus is doing here because they're so important. We want to keep talking about these things in the weeks to come. Jesus begins this encounter with two huge recognitions. Number one, every human is sacred. And therefore, number two, every story is sacred. Every human is sacred. Every story is sacred. 
Public faith begins with these two recognitions because Jesus begins with these two recognitions. He is so careful with her story. And we need to be careful too because over the centuries, um, many commentators and scholars and preachers have simply assumed that this woman was a serial adulterer or a flagrant sexual sinner or even a prostitute. And the reason is because when she says, I have no husband, Jesus says, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is just true. Now, there are a couple of things to notice about this. First of all, it's obvious that Jesus already knows that this woman isn't married. He knows that about her. And yet, when he begins by saying, go call your husband, do you see what he's doing? He's dignifying her by not outing her. He's giving her the opportunity to disclose her story um, without being forced into it. He's dignifying her. But even more than that, when Jesus says, you've had five husbands, here's the thing. That's all he says. That's all the detail we get. We don't know the story of these five husbands. Maybe they all died and she was widowed five times. Maybe she's barren and all five of these men divorced her because she couldn't produce a son for them. Maybe it's some combination of those factors. The simple fact is we just don't know what happened, so we shouldn't assume. What we do know is this. In the ancient world, women could not initiate a divorce. They didn't have that kind of power. Only a man could initiate a divorce. And we also know that in that culture, in that ancient world like that, women were trapped and caught in cultural and social forces way beyond their control. So it is at least as possible that this woman has been rejected and abandoned and betrayed five times, as, as much as it's possible that she's committed adultery five times. But whatever the story is, we know this much about her story. It is one of pain and loss and probably incredible shame. Your stories and the stories of the people around you are filled with pain and loss and probably a lot of shame too. And, and, and that also means that your stories and the stories of the people around you are the result of things that have happened to you. And you are not responsible for those things. You are not responsible for the things that have happened to you, for the things that have been done to you. This woman's story shows us that, but her story also shows us that we are responsible for the ways we respond to those things. Because even though Jesus is treating her so carefully and so gently, even though um, her life has been filled with so much pain, Jesus also knows and brings out the reality that she's living with a man that she's not married to. It's not her husband. In fact, it's very possible it's some other woman's husband because Jesus says, it's not your husband. But Jesus does not condemn her. He's not derisive of her. When he says, go call your husband, what he's doing is he's inviting her to have an incredibly vulnerable conversation about the ways that she's been responding to the pain and the loss in her story. Basically, Jesus is saying, do you really want this living water that I'm offering you? Then we need to have a conversation about where you've been looking for it up until now. Friends, the point of our second point is simply this. The gospel addresses the deepest pain, loss, and shame in our lives and in our stories by calling us and inviting us to be honest with ourselves and with God 
about all of the ways that we've been looking to satisfy the deepest desires of our heart. And that leads to our last point. <clears throat> we've seen who is the gospel for? We've seen what does the gospel address? But lastly, what does the gospel do? What does the gospel do? Because here's the thing that the gospel is, is inviting and calling us to wrestle with. Yes, we all have a story. We all have pain and loss and probably a lot of shame in our lives. But we also have ways that we've responded to our stories and the things that have happened to us that actually make our problems worse. So that when we look around at the world, when we look at our own lives, we don't see the fullness of satisfaction and joy and peace and wholeness and love that we're longing for. We're not finding the living water that we're all looking for. There's still so much brokenness and pain and evil in this world. Why? You remember earlier in this passage, it, Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Now, we know now that Jesus is not talking about physical thirst. He's talking about spiritual thirst. Do you remember our question from the beginning? Why should we go public with our faith and do evangelism? The reason is because not only does the gospel, not only is it the source of our deepest moral ideals, the gospel is the solution for our greatest human problems. The gospel is the solution, the explanation and the solution of our greatest human problems. Why is there war in the world? Why is there genocide? Why is there racism, poverty, oppression, violence, and addiction? Why is there still so much brokenness, pain, and evil in the world? Jesus is showing us that it's because we are constantly putting the bucket of our souls down in things that don't have the power to satisfy our deepest needs. Whoever drinks this water will thirst again. We're constantly thirsty, aren't we? Jesus is showing us that if we look to anything other than God to satisfy the deepest desires of our heart, if we put those kinds of demands on our loved ones or our spouses or on our children or on our careers or our achievements, <clears throat> If we put those kinds of demands on romance or sexual fulfillment or on a social cause or a political movement or whatever it might be, if we demand that those things fulfill the deepest desires of our heart, then not only will our demands crush those things, their inevitable failure to live up to our demands will crush us. Whoever drinks this water will thirst again. Friends, you know, the Bible calls that sin. And I know that that word has a lot of baggage in our culture, but sin simply means this, that just as it's possible that this woman in this story has been rejected and abandoned five times by five different men, in the same way, whenever we put the bucket of our souls down in something other than God, we're rejecting Him. We're betraying Him. And not only does it bring pain into our lives, it brings pain into God's heart. So here's the question. And we're going to look at this more and more as we continue through this story in the weeks to come. But I want to at least introduce this um, this week. We find out later in the story that this woman goes back to her village and she tells everybody there, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah, the Savior of the world? Now, here's what has always blown me away about this statement. Did Jesus really tell her everything? She ever did? Of course not. And yet, he, I mean, he just told her a part 
of her story. And yet this part of her story is so huge and so painful in her mind and in her life that it might as well have been everything she did because it defined her. And when she says this, she's giving us a glimpse into just how much all of this pain in her life had defined her up until this point. But now it doesn't. Not anymore. She's been set free from it. And she's telling everybody about it because it no longer defines her. How could she do that? Why could she do that? It's because something else has come into her life now. Something greater than her pain. Something bigger than her sin. Something that has redefined her so powerfully that all of the pain and loss and betrayal and abandonment and rejection and sin in her life is now nothing more than a footnote in her story. What could possibly do that for her? It's Jesus. How could Jesus do that for her? And how could Jesus do it for you and for me? I love the little ironies in this story. When she asks Jesus, um, when Jesus offers her, rather, the living water, she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? I can only imagine that at that moment, Jesus was standing there thinking to himself, my dear sister, you have no idea how deep the well I'm talking about really is. And you have even less idea the kinds of resources and what it's going to cost me to get to the bottom of that well to bring you living water. You have no idea. But one day, not only this woman, but the whole world was able to see exactly what it cost Jesus Christ to bring living water to the whole world. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ, the fountain of living water, cried out, I thirst. Jesus went to the very depths of hell. Jesus, on the cross, I mean, the physical furnace of human thirst is nothing compared to the infinitely greater spiritual furnace of cosmic thirst that Jesus swallowed on the cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ experienced abandonment by God. He was cut off from the presence of God so that we could drink from the life-giving presence of God. Jesus swallowed a million burning daggers in his soul. He took the unquenchable fire of all God's wrath on our sin so that we could drink from the fountain of his life. And when the same thing happens to you that happened to this woman, then you'll be able to move out into the world and do the same thing for others that Jesus did for her. And just to be really clear, I am not saying that means that we're going to die on a cross for the sins of the world. What I do mean is this. It means that you'll be able to move out into the world that you will move into the lives and the stories of the people around you in the same way that Jesus moved into the life and the story of this woman. It means that you will see that every human is sacred. You will treat every story as sacred. It means that you will treat every story with respect and honor and dignity and gentleness. But you will also invite people to be honest about all of the ways they're looking to fulfill the deepest desires of their heart in something other than God. And you'll be able to do all of that because Jesus has already done all of it for you. If you have received this living water, Jesus promises that it will turn you into a fountain of the same water to the world around you. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we praise you this morning 
For you are, as you've promised and proclaimed to us, the fountain of living waters. And yet, as the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 2, we have forsaken the fountain of living water and carved out cisterns, broken wells that can hold no water. And we're constantly going there and, and, and dipping the bucket of our souls in things that can never possibly satisfy us. Father, we acknowledge and confess that when we do that, we betray you, we reject and abandon you, and we are sorry. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you would um, help us to to dip the bucket of our soul in the life-giving water that Jesus gives, and that you would make us fountains of the same water to the world around us, Father, that you would help us to see every human as sacred, to treat every story as sacred, and that you would help us to be fountains of the same living water that we've received to the world around us. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.